Hi everyone, today we have a short excerpt from our currently running online salon series, A Fresh Look at the Red Book, Reading the Liber Novus with Jungian Psychoanalysts. This excerpt is going to be of George Bright, who is an analyst from the UK, um, who is joining us for most of this series. He will also be visiting us in May for an in-person seminar, Where Did Jung's Red Book Come From and Why Does It Matter? The Salon series, from which this excerpt is a part, is running from January through June, and it meets once a month on a Saturday from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Although the Salon series has already started, anyone who registers will receive the videos of previous sessions so that you can catch up. For more information about the Salon series and the in-person seminar, just click on the links in the show notes or visit our website youngchicago.org. Thanks. Jung towards the end of his life, um, dictating the protocols for memories, dreams, reflections to Aniela Yaffe, uh, wrote out the first three chapters himself. I mean, they are not Yaffe's work, they're his work. And you'll remember that towards the end of the first three chapters, which incidentally he wrote out in the successors to the Black Books, the Black Notebooks, uh, towards the end, he describes his personality number one and personality number two, you know, the adapted everyday scientist personality and the personality who was in touch with the night, the moon, uh, mysticism, the gods, other worlds, timelessness. Now, as far as I know, Jung doesn't talk anywhere else about personality number one and number two. And although I think that they are based in his experience of himself, in other words, you know, it's not just a literary device, I think those two personalities put out like that at the end of those chapters on his early life, offer or were intended to offer by Jung an introduction to Libanovus. Because when you open the first pages of Libanovus, what you get is an account of the spirit of the times and another spirit called the spirit of the depths. So what I'm suggesting is that Jung saw the first three chapters of what became Memories as his introduction to a published red book. And he gave Yaffe permission to use all or any part of the red book in Memories. Um, she, in fact, chose to use none of it, um, except in some countries' editions, the seven servants to the dead are put right at the end. So, you know, let's take Jung's um, way of looking at this, personality number one and number two. In 1903, when he became a doctor, the idea in his mind, he says, was that medicine would satisfy both of these personalities. Number one personality, a scientific activity that paid a good salary, um, personality number two would be accommodated because the branch of medicine he went into was psychiatry, you know, psyche, soul. What actually happened was that Jung in the Bergholtzli, you know, a cutting edge academic you know, university teaching hospital, um, you know, one of the leading psychiatric centers for innovation and research at the time, uh, Jung became involved almost entirely with scientific psychiatry, you know, which may be the most scientific and number-crunching 
um, element was the word association test. You know, chronometers, machinery, um, exact results, um, you know, comparing statistics to try to achieve some kind of differential diagnosis in psychiatry. By 1912, Jung was casting the net wider and he did the vast amount of mythological research for symbols and transformations of the libido. And he published that in the, in the um, International Journal for Psychoanalysis, the, the yearbook, uh, in two sections in 1912. The version of this book that we know Collected Works Volume 5 is in fact a re-edition and a major re-edition of 1952 or 3 I think uh, with a new preface and it is substantially different from what published, Jung published in 1912. The 1912 version is in no way a valorization of religion as a separate category. In fact, Jung is perfectly clear all the way through that book uh, that he is reducing all religion, all myth, to characteristic movements of libido. He said to Father Victor White at the beginning of their correspondence in the 1950s uh, that when he wrote the, that book, he, quote, eschewed everything that smelled of belief. Mm. Effectively, it's a book, if you read its original version, which you can, uh, translated into English by Beatrice Hinkle and published under the title, as Dan said, of The Psychology of the Unconscious. It was published in 1916. It's still in print, Collected Works, Volume B. If you read that, you can see it's a book that torches religion. It redu reduces all religion to psychoanalytic categories. I think that that was the apotheosis of Jung's, what he later calls personality number one, over the interests of number two. And what happens then? Well, if you look at the prologue to Liber Novus, Jung tells you exactly what happens next. Um, he tells you that on a railway journey, um, in fact, from uh, uh, Zurich to Schaffhausen, on a railway journey in uh, the in October of the year 1913, um, he has, I won't quote it, he has a vision, a hypnagogic vision, in which he sees the whole of Europe flooded in blood. Then a couple of weeks later, on the same railway journey, the same thing happens again. And a voice says to him, this is true, it is absolutely real. And I mean, that was an experience. Um, and if you like, you know, taking up Boris's point that you know, Jung's conceptual language and formulations are redolent of having been formed in some as yet undisclosed experience, you could say that that's the beginning of the, of the experience. That's the first disclosure that Jung makes. 
about the experience that has reorientated him and his life and his work so substantially. Jung then, I think, as a result of his um, understanding of his hubristic act in writing a book which effectively reduces all religion to science, followed by what for any of us would be a pretty uh, substantial and difficult experience, you know, a repeated hypnagogic vision you know, twice within a fortnight, um, begins to develop a technique uh, for trying to get back to his abandoned um, personality number two. Um, the first thing that he starts doing is in the afternoons in the garden in Kusnacht, uh building model villages and um, you know, digging into the soil. Um, there's quite a nice picture in the a photograph in the Art of C.G. Jung book of Jung much later in life, still by the remains of the ruined castle uh, that he built out of his son Francis building bricks in the garden in Kusnacht. I mean, he was trying to get into something in another way, you know, not scientific research, not academic research, not reading and writing, um, but something else. And then uh, in September 1913, uh, he begins another technique, which is described in what is now chapter one of Liber Novus, entitled Refinding the Soul. I mean, maybe it's worth just reading this as an introduction because this is the place where it all begins. Um, it's, uh, I'll, I'll just read about half a dozen lines from it. So Jung says, when I had the vision of the flood in October of the year 1913, it happened at a time that was significant for me as a man. At that time, in the 40th year of my life, I had achieved everything I had wished for myself. I had achieved honour, power, wealth, knowledge, and every human happiness. Then my desire for the increase of these trappings ceased. The desire ebbed from me, and horror came over me. Um, the word for horror there, I mean, I don't speak German, but for those of you who do speak German, is grauen, which German speakers tell me means the horror of something coming up behind you. The vision of the flood seized me, and I felt the spirit of the depths, but I did not understand him. Yet he drove me on with unbearable inner longing, and I said, and then this is the entry from Black Book, the first Black Book entry. So Jung is now sitting in his study, presumably after dinner when the family have gone to bed. Um, his wife is heavily pregnant with their fifth and last child, um, who will be born in January. So his wife is six months pregnant. And Jung's sitting down. He takes up the Black Books, which he last wrote in 1903, interestingly enough you know, which were kind of personal notebooks up to then. 
and he writes as he thinks, and this is what he's thinking and writing. My soul, where are you? Do you hear me? I speak, I call you, are you there? I have returned. I am here again. I have shaken the dust of all the lands from my feet, and I have come to you. I am with you. After long years of wandering, I have come to you again. Should I tell you everything I have seen, experienced and drunk in? Or do you not want to hear about all the noise and life of the world? But one thing you must know, the one thing I have learned, is that one must live this life. This life is the way, the long sought after way, to the unfathomable, which we call divine. I'll stop there, there's another few lines, but I'll stop there and just note that now that we've got the black books available to us, the word divine is in inverted commas, in parentheses in the black books. When it gets a year later to Jung writing it out in the red book, the inverted commas have gone. He's not talking about the divine as a figure of speech. He's now talking about God. And this is, I think, a remarkable, what Jung later called enantiodromia, a, a remarkable turnaround, you know, uh, um, a, a shuttling from one pole to the other of from a, a radical scientific atheism and materialism uh, to, a, as he puts it in the title, a refinding of the soul. And I mean, we could talk about what soul means in German, but I don't think it's particularly crucial at this point, because in many ways, you know, the Black Books from 1913 to about 1932 uh, record Jung's developing relationship with a figure called My Soul. Um, you know, who is a very, very different figure as he apprehends her in 1913 from the figure that he says goodbye to in 1932.